we're looking at the first communion. It's what we're doing here. The very first communion service was... Who's going to shout the answer? It was today. Okay? It's why we do it on Good Friday. Because that's when the very first communion took place. Okay, it was an ordinary Passover event. Passover is when the Jews celebrated as an annual feast, the passing over of the angel of death. Okay, in Israel, we did this on theology course. Uh, I remember answering here that that, that event was really a type, a picture. Uh, the, the lamb, the liberation from Egypt was really a type and picture of, and this is where you're better theologians than Moses, really was a type and picture of, Jesus and the liberation that he purchases for us. I mean, no Jew knew that, but you know that. Do you see? And so here's Passover. They're celebrating it. So it's not, it's not insignificant that of all the days that Jesus could have been executed, naturally, remember, this whole thing seemed to be natural. Of all the days Jesus could have been executed, it happens to fall on Passover. And in fact, we haven't got time to look at it this morning because my time is restricted. You do realise if I didn't have a clock, I could talk all day. No one will be listening all day. <laughs> but I could. Okay, okay. So here, here's a reality that some have worked out that Jesus' age was exactly the age of Adam. It would have been when Adam fell. Remember, this is the second Adam. Here he is on the most significant of, of days, Passover. It's an ordinary Passover. They have this every year. It's kind of getting pretty regular now. Crowds, we said maybe three million people have gathered into the city. Just a few days earlier, we had Palm Sunday. It's Thursday evening. Jewish days begin, in, begin different to ours. Ours start at midnight, don't they? Uh, it's a weird time to start day. Okay, because some people are still up <laughs> when their new day starts. Okay, but generally, but in that culture, it was sunrise. Okay, and Sabbath always began of the evening. So Sabbath would begin Friday evening, go through to Saturday evening, six to six. Thursday evening, six p.m. Now, it's preparation for Passover. Jesus is Jesus would have celebrated at least. Two Passovers with his disciples. This is his third. And, and we should imagine on the previous ones, they were pretty regular. You know, you, you, know, you took your lamb, had his sacrifice, you, know, you sat around for the meal, you celebrated it in remembrance of what happened back in your history. And you knew, you knew that it had some future trajectory, but no one knew because no one understood what you understand. But you nevertheless did it. And it starts like that almost, except it's a bit weird. Listen to this, Luke 22. Jesus says to them, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. So... This whole thing's already beginning in a bizarre way. Jesus is always doing these weird things, like when he wanted to pay his tax, instead of putting his hand in his pocket, he cheats. What does he do? Yeah, he sends Peter to go fishing. He says, Peter, go and catch fish. And the very first fish you catch, 
split it open, and there's that text. The exact amount you need. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, who does that? But God. And here, he wants to celebrate the Passover, and so he sends a, the disciples and men and goes, you'll meet a guy, and he'll lead you to a room, and he'll know what it's all about. He goes, yeah, sure, okay. You know, that kind of thing. Do you think Jesus has got this one right? And they do, and this guy tells them about this room, so they get the place ready, okay? But that's the, just the first of a series of peculiar events surrounding this Passover. They get the meal ready, okay? And it gets stranger still. Look, Jesus had often talked about dying. Look, Mark 10. He says, A son of man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. He's always talking about his death. And they had no excuse, really, for not understanding that Jesus was going to die because he talked about it. Except that excuse was... Pardon? No, they, wouldn't, they didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. Who could believe that the Messiah, thanks it, you, you've waited for him. He's not going to die. You can't kill God's Messiah. I mean, Peter says, look, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And in fact, he understood more. The son of the living God. That was a connection, not, not any. Peter is the very first person to get a full grasp of who Jesus is. He is not just the Holy One. He is the Holy One, the Son of the Living God. And so here's a Passover meal now, okay? It's the evening. Jesus begins to talk. First of all, he's talking about being betrayed. Okay, listen to this. Whilst we're eating, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. I mean, this is a bit random. You know, it's like me saying in here, you know, one of you, one of you is going to betray our group. Hand us in to the Adelaidean authorities because they've been doing some weird cult stuff, you see. Yeah. You know, this is a bizarre, it seems, and somewhat random accusation that someone would betray him. If it gets worse, then he goes on to talk about his flesh and his body. Now, he did a sermon some time back that I may have remembered. It's in John 6, when he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh or eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So they're, just, they're used to Jesus talking this way. But now, listen to what he does at, the, at this communion service. <coughs> While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he said these words. Take and eat. This is my body. You can only imagine that the minds would have connected something of, hey, he said something about this. And he continues, he took the cup, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And so Jesus here takes a Passover meal and can you see what he's doing here? Okay, you've been invited to a meal to somebody's house. It's someone's birthday. And in the middle of the meal, when it's time for the speeches, you get up. Okay, Mr. Jack, come lately. Johnny, come lately. He goes, well, I just want to tell you about myself. 
you know, and you know, and all the things you've done, and I just want to thank you for being here. Would that be a bit bizarre? Jesus stands up in the middle of a Passover meal. What's a Passover meal about? Yeah, of the Jews and, and of the Lamb. And, and here's Jesus. What's he doing? He's stealing the show. Look at him. He goes, take it, this is my body. He stands up in this meal that's about a Passover, about the Lamb, about the Jews who live in Israel, and, 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 he, and he shifts the focus to himself. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. And then he begins to speak about new covenant. That's a big thing. You see, a covenant was what established your relationship with God. And, and who established this covenant? Who, who established the covenant that the Jews were in? What character? Moses. You never spoke against Moses. Okay? the father of their faith, well, Abraham, along with Moses, and the covenant. This was the only mechanism by which you could relate with God. You didn't touch the covenant, because without the covenant, you, could, you couldn't access God. It was one of those untouchable things. And it's Jesus, listen to these words, this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant. Elsewhere it talks about a new covenant. That's, well, that wasn't something that anyone was ready for. And yet again here, look, one of the Old Testament prophets speaks about new covenants in Jeremiah 31. So there's no doubt tension arising here. It's a, it's, a, it's a bizarre situation. The disciples have no idea this is the last night of Jesus' life as they know it. He turns a Passover meal into something that they've never come across before. And he continues, Matthew 26, this very night... You will all fall away on account of me. And he's talking to Peter. Okay, of all the disciples, you, you wouldn't find, you couldn't find a more passionately loyal disciple than Peter. And the mouth to go with it. Okay? And so, here Jesus said, look, you're, you're, you're going to all betray me. You're all going to leave me. And Peter... <laughs> I love Peter. Look, even if all fall away. This is a bit, you know, it's a bit disregard for his mates, isn't he? He goes, you know, they may go. <laughs> you, know, you, know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rely on them, Jesus, but not me. Not me. Okay? Okay, I will never betray you. And look, remember Peter, it seems that Peter's one of the, I'm sure he speaks for the group. But when he says this in Mark 10, Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. Peter's well aware of the sacrifice he's made for Jesus. What was he doing before Jesus came along? He was a fisherman. He had a business. And he's doing pretty well. I don't, I don't, you, know, you have to realise, you know, this was a very, fairly lucrative business. What did Israelites eat more than anything else? They didn't eat cows or lambs because that was your wealth. What did they eat? This was the most lucrative business in the land. Seriously. This guy had a, a comfortable business. And so when he says, Lord, we left everything to follow you, there's a lot of truth to that. And so Jesus, ignoring the response, because, you know, Peter's going to see soon what's going to happen, isn't he? As the early hours of the morning now, we were talking at the very early hours of Friday morning, 
We read in John 13, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus says to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. Some thought he was just telling him to go, you know, get what was needed. But Jesus knew. And I wonder, I have to wonder what Judas thought at that moment. Jesus tells him to go and do what he's got to do. But nevertheless, he goes. Jesus then leads him to a regular spot. Gethsemane was a place that Jesus, he seems... Remember, he moved around the, around the countryside and the city. He would have had regular, you know, hotels that he stayed at. What were the hotels that he stayed at? It would have been, what do you do in the desert in this country, in those bags on the floor? You, you just jump into your swag, don't you, and you sleep on the floor. Except in that country, you didn't even bother with the swag. You just slept in your location. You know, have you ever tried that? Anybody done some real, real camping? Yeah? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, that's what Jesus is. Isn't his favourite, one of the favourite hideout sleep places, okay? He's there. The Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. We well, said it's already late. It wouldn't have been uncommon for Jesus to leave his disciples to pray. If you read the Gospels, it's something he seems to do. Spend many an evening in prayer. And so this itself wouldn't be surprising, but on this night, verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with them. What did that mean? He took the three with him. What did that, what did that mean about this, this evening there? This prayer time, as opposed to all do the prayer times of an evening. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. This is different. This bizarre night is just continuing to get strange. It's very late, early hours of the morning. Okay, and Jesus does his thing. We always let him do that. He goes off to pray, and, and we have a laugh, us chaps, and then we fall asleep. And, and we, you know, well, Jesus wakes us up in the morning. And that's kind of what happened. He just goes and does his thing with, his, with God. At least we think that's what he does. Uh, but now, he, he only took those three with him at very significant junctures. When he raised Jairus' daughter, when he, when he was uh, the transfiguration up on the mountain, at very significant moments, okay, for him to be calling these three aside, something significant is going on. Look, he took them aside and, and they witnessed Okay, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One of the things about being a pastor or whatever role you may have, look, whatever happens in your private life when you go to work on 9 o'clock Monday morning, you've got to look right for the path, haven't you? You know, one of the things when you're doing public speaking you, know, you may have just bumped your knee and you're in agony, but when you stand at the front, you don't start going, ah, I think you're a wimp. You may already think that, okay? Uh, but, you know, you, you, you do your thing. You, you have your public persona, don't you? Jesus always had his public persona on. Always. Except for now. They're witnessing these three a Jesus they'd never seen before. A vulnerability is showing through. He is human after all. He's in anguish. 
troubled. Look, my, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's an absolutely unique scene. This man had always got it together, was always composed, is now seemingly falling apart. And we'll skip a couple of those uh, texts there, Ricky. Okay. To verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And this is his prayer. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's one of the strangest prayers Jesus ever prayed. And he prays some strange prayers if you read them. And this is God speaking with God. If you ever wonder what Jesus' prayers look like, well, here's one, okay? This is God speaking with God. The very purpose, he says in John 12, the very reason he's come is for this hour. And yet, when the hour has come, what is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? And I don't think we're to think that this is his flesh and, and, and he's, he's somehow rejecting his flesh. This, this is, you know, we sometimes dichotomize Jesus unfairly and untheologically, you know, as though Jesus is such a weak character. Sometimes the human character is stronger than his God character, which is absolutely pathetic, isn't it? Like his human character could ever be greater than his God character. We have to understand that his human character is always under the control and oversight of his Divine nature, always. So this isn't Jesus' human nature, kind of having the preeminence, like his divine nature has lost control and he sees to be God. No, remember, he's God. This is his divine nature that's resisting what's ahead. Why, Why? Let me ask you, what was it about the cross that causes Jesus to shun it to this degree as God. Not in his human side, as God. What was it about that cross that would make God want to reject it? That's half of it. Okay, and I'm going to put the two together. That's one half. What are you going to say, Sid? Separate, that's the other half. There's two halves, thank you. I told you you guys are theologians. Even these Montas. Seriously, that's brilliant. You know, a lot of people get that wrong. Okay? Number one, he's going to take on the weight of the sins upon him. Wow. What does that mean? Okay, if Catherine was taking the weight of the whole sin of the world, what does that mean she becomes? Yeah. She becomes the word, the worst murderer you could envisage. The worst serial, cold-blooded, calculated, savage murderer you can imagine who commits the most brutal crimes known to humanity. Now multiply that by, by a trillion and you see something of what Jesus becomes. He's going to become... Now when he becomes... The sin of all the world. God, it says in Hebrews that, that God placed on him our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Okay. 
what does he become to God, the Father? At that moment when he is sin epitomized, what does he become to the Father? The object of ultimate hatred. This, this, is, this is what Jesus is shunning, that God and God are going to become in one moment on the cross enemies. One is going to become the hateful object of highest degree. So much so that when Jesus is falling on the cross, what does the Father have to do? Turn away, reject him. He rejects himself. This is so complex, you see. That God rejects God. He turns from him. He cannot bear to look at this object of horror and hatred. You see, God loves, but he hates sin, doesn't he? And his son is now the very epitome of sin. And so Jesus, what does he cry out? My God, my God. Jesus has never known. Look, we go through life with all kinds of diverse experiences of separation and everything else. Jesus never knew, never knew what it was like to be separated from God. And now, on the cross, he faces it. That's why he's sweating drops of blood. That's why he's in anguish. That's why there's this torment. He's, how, could, how could God and God possibly experience this severing? Look, our time is up. But Jesus succumbs finally. Judas returns. He's taken away, he's tried in a makeshift court. Hurried through in the middle of the night <coughs> to get this execution on the way. And then finally, at the early hours of the morning, Jesus is made to carry a cross after being scourged, half to death. And then pinned to it. And then all that the communion meal symbolises He faces. Jesus died for the sins of the world by becoming the object of greatest reproach and wrath for you and me. He became me. And so Charles is right. He died just for us. But that involved becoming all the vile stench of a man that I am. So he did it. It took the full weight of that upon himself. So that today, you and I can be free. Free of the power of sin, free of the fear of hell, free to live for Jesus in relationship, experiencing not wrath, because that's quenched, fully quenched. Every sin, every sin. Here's the enormity of it. This isn't a license to sin, but here's the reality of it. That he's quenched God's wrath against 
every sin that you and I will ever have any interaction with. And so we worship him. And we're going to do that now. As we break bread together, it's our act of worship to the God who came and died for me, for us. Amen.